what are the marks of true salvation? How do we know if we really have genuinely tasted of God and know and love him? How do we know? What are those marks? And in fact, what are the believer's responsibility? What's the fruit that ends up characterizing true belief, true repentance, true faith in God? I mean, is it that uh, we've had an experience? Is that we go to church? Is it that we um, have walked an aisle maybe at some point in our life, prayed a prayer, um, signed a decision card, or thrown a pine cone in a fire somewhere at some camp? What is it? Is it that you felt a certain way at certain events, at different moments in your life, at that crusade or this conference or this place or this event? You see, there's been a problem since the beginning of the fall of man into sin that raises a question about what true salvation looks like in those that are saved from this problem of sin and and reflecting upon a time period in which many people were going and had a lot of experiences and had a lot of uh, uh, different ceremonies and feelings and uh, decisions being made for Christ at the time of the Great Awakening. Jonathan Edwards, alive during that time, is considered the great theologian, was reflecting upon the thousands of people that were making professions, the thousands of people that were wailing in aisles and raising their hands and um, just falling and weeping over their sin, supposedly, and all these events going on during the Great Awakening. Jonathan Edwards was reflecting about the nature of true conversion and asked the very same question. What does it mean to truly be saved and what are the fruits is it exhibited as he was seeing in his day through the emotionalism and the, the falling on the aisles, the decision-making? In fact, he gave an illustration that I think is helpful for us to consider. He gave an illustration of the events of his day, of all the people that were joining himself in these, uh, the Great Awakening, time of great salvation where definitely many were saved. But he gave the illustration of all the people that were participating in this were like people sitting at a banquet and at this banquet, there were foods laid out that each member was able to partake in. And Jonathan Edwards went on to describe that these people that were sitting there had never had grapes before in their life. Now, again, this is just an illustration. Grapes are pretty common, but nonetheless, follow the illustration. There was a bowl of grapes. And somebody picks out and reaches out and grabs a grape, puts it in their mouth, for the first time tastes a grape. Goes on to describe what it tastes like, the sweetness, the juiciness, uh, sort of crunchy, you know, all the experiences. And it's just, they're describing how great this grape is, never having tasted one before. For somebody else to pick one up and describe, wow, yes, I see what you're talking about. It is incredible. I love the taste of this grape. On and on it goes. And then someone else at that table grabs a grape, puts it in their mouth, begins to eat it. But there's a problem with this person unlike the others. This person has a disability. That disability is a fact that they cannot taste, have no taste buds. There's nothing in them to allow them to experience what it is that everyone else is describing. But the way that Jonathan Edwards unfolds the illustration is he goes on to describe, does this person just stand up and say, I can't taste it? Well, perhaps some do, but some people, like uh, the days that he was dealing with in the Great Awakening, Instead of saying, I can't taste this, they go on to use the same words. They go about the same gestures. They speak the same language of those that truly have tasted and have been changed by the taste of a grape. Those that can't taste just simply go through the same motions, but in fact don't experience at all the same thing. This wasn't just a problem for Jonathan Edwards' day. In fact, this has been a problem since sin came into the world. The deception of sin, the seeing the things of God, but yet not believing him as we should. And in fact, many people join themselves to religious service. They go through motions, they go through many things, but in fact are never truly saved. They never truly taste. They have spiritual disabilities where they don't see the things of the Lord, but that doesn't mean that they cease at least regurgitating the same information and the experiences of those that truly have. They learn how to talk to talk. They do all these things. They've seen the works of God, but yet have never truly tasted it themselves. 
Well, in our text today, in Hebrews chapter 3, I'll invite you to turn there. The author of Hebrews, much like in the days of Jonathan Edwards, relates the same experience to the biblical account of the Israelites in the wilderness, the wilderness generation of Israel. Those that had seen so much of God, they had seen his deliverance out of Egypt, they had gone out, they had received and heard God's voice, seen him at Mount Sinai. All these events that they had seen and tasted of the Lord. But yet what we see is a striking imagery of the fact that even though they had participated in many things of God, they never truly followed or obeyed him. Beginning in Hebrews 3, I want to read to you a quote from Psalm 95, 7-11, right here in Hebrews 3, that demonstrates the wickedness of this generation and their disobedience and their unbelieving hearts. We see there in verse 7 of chapter 3, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the days of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me, and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not Enter my rest. For 40 years, this people had seen the wonders and the signs of God. They had gone through the religious motions and followed the ceremonies of all that God had instructed them, all the while, never really knowing and tasting of God. They had a serious problem. They had a serious problem. And just like in the days of when Psalm 95 was written, David was warning his current generation about having that same type of unbelief. Later on, you're going to see in the prophets, using this illustration of tasting and singing, going through ritual and all these things that the people of God have always experienced, but yet the warning that you truly don't believe in him, even though you're doing all these things. Well, today, the author of Hebrews picks up this very same theme that Jonathan Edwards picked up on, that the prophets picked up on, the psalmist picked up on, and even happened for us as a way of instruction in the days of Israel and their wandering in the wilderness. What is the exhortation in light of the fact that this type of unbelief could exist in our heart? What danger is it that we're being warned about? And what is we as true believers should take away as an exhortation from this text? Well, the answer is in verse 12 to 14. There it says, in light of these things, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. What you're going to see here, in light of the dangers that are all around us that face every generation of those that would truly have faith in God, to exemplify the true qualities of those that are saved and have been transformed by the gospel, you're going to see what every believer's responsibility is and the exhortation that we have to faithfulness. In fact, there's going to be three responsibilities that I'm going to challenge you from that I believe is the author's challenge corporately to the church as we consider the three responsibilities that every believer must pursue until the end. The exhibition or the example of what true faith lives out in light of the dangers that surround us that faces our very day that we live in. The first responsibility that we need to understand and the exhortation that comes to us in light of these dangers is personal faithfulness in verse 12. First and foremost... We need to know that we have a responsibility to personal faithfulness. When verse 12 opens out, you see this. It says, take care, as the NSB says. Other translations, see to it. Be careful. Take strong attention. Be warned. You get the idea? This is a sharp warning with a tone of urgency. What is it that the author of Hebrews is so concerned about? Well, let's see. He says there, brothers, not even one of you. Be warned that there not be any one of you this this problem of an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. 
So when he says brothers, not one of you, who is he talking about there? Is he simply saying that, you know, as I'm exhorting this group of believers, that, you know, this half, you guys are okay, but this half, you guys need to listen and be warned. You know, there's some that, that, that would qualify, um, that, that, that are obviously really, really spiritual, that don't need to be exhorted. They've they got it together. They've, they've got all the right events and right ceremonies down, so they don't need to listen to this as much as maybe this group does. You guys are really bad off. That's not the case, right? It's the whole group. Every single believer that's addressed here, brothers, each one of you need to be warned that there's a dangerous threatening thing that may exist in your heart. What is that dangerous thing? What is he worried about for all these believers? And what is the danger that they face? Not just some of them, all of them, no matter who they were. Well, obviously here you see in the text the danger is that there could be an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Do you believe that this is a danger for you? The warning comes to believers. The warning comes to those who have experienced things of God, who have tasted and seen. This is a warning not to just sit at the table and regurgitate facts and go through the motions. But this is a warning that there's a danger that each one of us faces and we need to take action I mean, again, what's his concern for the audience and how serious is this? I mean, aren't they all just believers? Haven't they done the necessary things and shouldn't you just chill out a little bit? I mean, come on. The illustration that he's already been talking about tells us how serious this is. Because, again, if you look back, this evil, unbelieving heart that he's talking about is exhibited in the Israelites who for how many years? Saw the things of God. How many years? For 40 years, it says there in verse 9. 40 years. And what had they seen? Probably things greater than even you and I had seen. And we always say, man, if we would just see things of God, things would be different. It wasn't the case for the Israelites. They'd been powerfully delivered out of Egypt. They'd been provided for in the wilderness, but yet still, even in the midst of all of God's provision, never gave thanks to him or honored him as such and never sought to obey him. You see, for 40 years they experienced this and then you see the fact in verse 10, what is God's response to such people that just go through ceremony but never truly seek to obey him and follow after him? Rightfully so, verse 10, he's angry. This angers God. I was angry with this generation and said they always go astray in their heart They did not know my ways. Wow. What was it that Israel did that angered God and made such a serious judgment upon them? Well, let's walk through some of the basics. They were rebuked for unbelief at the location of Kadesh after the refusal to enter the promised land, right? They were on the very verge of entering the land. So number 13, you know, again, you get there and you see that the spies go into the land and they know that God has promised to give them this land. And just characteristic, along with everything that they've already done, they fail to obey God and go in and take the land. They look with their eyes and they they consider what's best for them is not what God has commanded them to do, but what they decide that they want to do instead. This wicked generation, as they're called, the key section of Numbers 14 is simply God's indictment to this people and their failure again and again and again to look at Yahweh's faithfulness and to respond to him with true worshipful lives. In Numbers 14, 11, Yahweh says, how long will this people treat me with contempt? Not obeying God, not truly seeking him, but just going through rituals called contempt here to Yahweh. How long will they refuse to believe me in spite of all the miraculous signs I have performed among them? That's a powerful statement. God calls them for such unbelief, for such 
um, characteristic disobedience, when they refuse to enter the promised land, God just simply calls them this evil community. In Numbers 14, 27, Yahweh says there, How long must I endure this evil community that keeps complaining about me? I have heard the Israelites' complaints that they make about me. Jump down to verse 35 in Numbers 14. And this is talking about the judgment that Yahweh is bringing upon this people. I, Yahweh, have spoken. I swear that I will do this to the entire evil community that has conspired against me. They will come to an end in the wilderness, and there they will die. Failure to believe Yahweh brought about their judgment in the wilderness for the next 40 years. Each one of that generation fell and died in the wilderness as an act of judgment for their unbelieving hearts. Is this serious? What's God's attitude toward unbelief and unbelieving hearts? Well, maybe it's probably more helpful to understand what characterizes an evil heart in such a way. What is an evil heart? Well, can I give you a simple definition? An evil heart, as talked about here and all the warning passages that I've referenced so far, an evil heart characterizes those who willfully follow their own plans rather than God's purposes. An evil heart characterizes those who willfully follow their own plans rather than God's purposes and will. Later on when Jeremiah references the time of this rebellious generation of the wilderness Israelites, He references the believers of the people in his day. In Jeremiah 16, he says, you did more evil than your fathers. They're referencing the same kind of hearts that they exhibit that were probably perhaps even worse than that generation. He says there, look, each one of you was following the stubbornness of his evil evil heart. And then he goes on and adds this descriptive phrase of what an evil heart is, not obeying me. You did more evil than your fathers. Look, each one of you was following the stubbornness of his evil heart, not obeying me. In chapter 18, we understand again this picture of an evil heart. In 18 verse 12, but they will say it's hopeless. It's hopeless to trust in Yahweh. It's hopeless to really do what he commands. It's hopeless in light of our situation. So what are we going to do? Here's what they resolved. It's hopeless We will continue to follow our plans. And each of us will continue to act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart. Instead of truly obeying Yahweh and the difficulty of what that might mean, an evil, unbelieving heart is stubborn, it's stiff-necked. It refuses to truly obey Yahweh and instead just continues with the motions of life, continuing to do what it wants to do rather than submitting and obeying God. The allusions all throughout Scripture, including Jeremiah that we just read, to Numbers 14, show that unbelief is not simply a lack of trust or passive disbelief. But what it is, is a positive refusal to believe and do what God has commanded you to do. It's a positive refusal to believe and do what God has commanded you to do. In place of that, you choose to do what you want to do following your own ambitions and your own desires. What wicked, foolish, evil hearts we have. It's an act of disobedience to God, a failure to obey and abide and follow Him. As one commentator says, the allusions to number 14 are significant because they indicate that unbelief is not a lack of faith or trust. It is a refusal to believe God and obey him. It leads inevitably to turning away from God in a deliberate act of rejection to do what you want rather than what God wills. I mean, again, isn't this the fundamental characteristic that Jesus says? If you love me, John 14, 15, what will you do? Obey my commandments. And we understand this too in the New Testament, the exhortations again, that when we truly worship God, it's not about just going through the rituals. It's not just going through the motions. 
We can do all sorts of things in the name of God, but truly fail to worship him. How dangerous this is that we understand in light of the mercies of God, the way that we're to offer true lives of worship to him is by offering our entire lives, our bodies. And that the characteristic of that, what does that look like? Well, on the one hand, Romans 12, 2, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Your mind needs to be changed from your own ambitions, your own desires, to the thoughts of God and his will. Aligning yourself to what his word instructs us and teaches us to do. A further exhortation, Ephesians 4.17. So I tell you this and insist on it. Paul insists that we do this. Believers, what is it? He insists on it in the Lord that you no longer live as the Gentiles do. In the futility of their thinking. Thoughts that align ourselves too much to our thoughts and what we want and how we can accomplish and gain all the things that we pursue in this life, all the vain things that we seem so, that are so trivial that we just occupy ourselves and pursue after time and time and time again. The amounts of money that we spend pursuing after the vanity of our own lusts. Yet we prayed it is just a hobby, it's just a side thing. But in fact, these things consume us, don't they? We shouldn't live that way anymore, right? This is the quality of true believers is that we understand the dangers of these things that lead you to love the vain things of this world as opposed to renewing yourself and aligning yourself to fulfill the purposes of God for why you exist and what he's left us here to do until his return. Instead, we should put off those things and put on new ways of thinking in conformity to obedience to Christ. The dangers of sin and the fact that each believer is exhorted here to this is a warning for all of us, right? The things that we desire and long for is not that guy or that person sitting over there that, man, they really love that. The problem is with you and your own heart. You know those things that tempt you. Those things can, in fact, entice you by your own desires and lead you to fall away from God and have nothing truly of him at all because you're more consumed with those things than actually aligning yourself in obedience to his will. Things that aren't inherently sinful but yet could lead you from falling away. We need to be warned against this, believers, each one of us in our own hearts. Brethren, be warned against the vanity of your own hearts that in each one of you exists a potential for an evil unbelief that you could be enticed by and be led astray from faithfulness to God and true obedience to his will. All those who ignore these words are in great danger of those repeating the ancient era of Israel that in every generation of true believers need to be warned against. But it's not just a personal warning, right? It's not that we only need to be aware that this exists in all of our hearts, brothers and sisters. But it's also true evidence of salvation, true evidence and responsibility that a believer has and that is exhibited in a true life of faith is not only a personal guard against this evil unbelief and guarding against your own desires, but one another. It's, it's, it's to the corporate faithfulness of the church. It's also a corporate reality that your life is no longer lived for your own indulgences, but for the building up of those around you. Does that make sense? I love what it says in verse 13. Instead of having an evil, unbelieving heart, what should be your action? What should you do, believers? What is your mission in life? What is your ambition to see done? Verse 13, encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today. So that what? None of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You have a responsibility And in fact, those that understand the gospel know the dangers of sin and want to see others around them guarded against the patterns of sin that could lead you to fall away from God. This is no small matter, and this is no small stewardship that we're all entrusted to. 
Keep on exhorting in other ways. A way to translate this. Keep on. It's a continual imperative of what the action is that we're to be doing. So instead of, put the contrast in mind, instead of having an unbelieving heart that turns away from God, that does what you want to do, that fulfills your own desires, conforming yourself after gaining things in this life, instead of having that type of heart, turning away from God, the positive action that our author commands us to do is to make sure that an evil unbelief does not appear in anyone else around you. The community as a whole, as well as as each member within it, should be vigilant and constant in their care for others by mutual exhortation, encouragement in Christ. Well, Cooper, I know, but I just don't like going to church because it's full of hypocrites. You ever heard that statement? A statement like that comes from somebody who completely fails the point of this passage. They don't understand that the church is not made up of perfect people. It's made up of the redeemed community that has been saved. And your stewardship, again, your solution is to be further disobedient to God because you don't want to join yourself to that assembly, to those people that profess and love Christ, to see them built up and encourage one another because sin is deceitful, that we need what God has designed here to accomplish this end. And you'd be willing to sit aside and be further disobedient from God? In fact, maybe you could tell them in a loving way, you still have a sinful, unbelieving heart that's leading you to do what you want to do as opposed to what God's commanded you to do. The danger of unbelief and even bad idea of even what the church is meant to be and what it's meant to accomplish and the roles that each one of us serve in our stewardship as truly saved people. Your focus is not on the the hypocrites that are here, but your goal is is to see how you can help lay a foundation in people's lives for Christ and help them build upon that with setting godly patterns, with denying sin, and helping them understand the scriptures that are able to save the soul. This characterizes true faith. This corporate faithfulness that's exhibited here is this concern for people around you. A true believer's desire is to join himself to the church, to build others up, and to warn and encourage people to press on to the end. Trust me when I say, we'll all stumble at different times here in this body. But what do you do when somebody sins? Say, oh, can you believe, did you hear about so-and-so over here? Wow. And that's the end of our contribution, right? The way that we contribute to people's sins too often. Because we love to just talk about people's sins and just, wow, man, they're really far gone. You need to repent more so than the other person. You need to deal with the log in your eye and fail you to understand that your burden for that person's soul is to help them and build them up. Shame on us for failing. And our most primary elementary task of loving people and helping steer them to a greater foundation in Christ Shame on us. The avoidance of apostasy that could happen even here demands not simply an individual vigilance in your own heart. It's not that God made you to be an island, but he's designed this body that we exhort and encourage one another against the dangers and pursuits that we have in our own lives. I pray that as we are so prone to find fixations on things of this world, that when a loving brother comes to you and says, I think you're loving this a little bit too much, that you would have the humility to say, you know what, you're right. I have been loving this or that more than Christ. The sad realities of this is too often are plagued by neglect. And again, the hero is never supposed to be the preacher of his own story, so let me tell you another side of the story. One of my best friends from college at Bible College, of all things, was a friend that we used to discuss things of God. We used to talk about the gospel, the glories of salvation in Christ. We'd open up the scriptures and we would delight in these things. This friend had continual patterns of things that did warn me, but I just said, you know, that's just how he is. It's, just, it's his liberty to do those things, and I just kind of let it go. 
When in fact that pattern grew and it festered. To the point where this dear friend of mine has apostatized from the faith. And he makes a mockery of Christ where he once, he once delighted with me in them. evil, unbelieving heart. Beyond just going through the motions, understanding the dangers of how deceitful these things are and the concern, the patterns that show forth in people's lives that we just think, ah, you know, that's not a big deal. Let me just charge you guys to think a little bit differently about the nature of sin and how deceitful it is. Because isn't that what the text says? That there's a deceitfulness of sin. There's a deceit in it. There's a way that it can lure and entice each one of us from being faithful to the glorious God of the gospel, our Lord Christ. That none of you may become hardened by sin's deceptions. In other words, it's a callousing effect. Something that begins with a little desire that can, over time, callous you, harden you, and further deceive you to fall away from God altogether. The purpose of our gathering together, the purpose of what we do, is to exhort and admonish another about sin's deception. Our own desires enticing us to some pleasures other than obedience to God. An elevation of our own pursuits and things that we long after more so than Christ. When we think about the deceit of sin and how deceitful is sin, we realize that this was a significant element in the story of Adam and Eve's fall in the Garden of Eden. It's not just a problem for our time, but it was in fact what caused the initial sin and led to the death of all the world. In Genesis 3.13, at the light of the fact that Satan came and tempted Eve and she looked and saw and said, you know what, this doesn't seem that bad. Why would God have a commandment against it? The issue there was obedience to God's command. The sin was in deceit that you could get something by this that obedience to God doesn't bring. The allurement of gaining things outside of God and delighting him in any way as simple as taking a piece of fruit that God has forbidden, putting it in your mouth, and swallowing it down. What did Eve save when she was busted? Genesis 3.13, Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Do you realize that the exact same way that she was deceived into sin is the same way that we're deceived into sin. The danger for some of us is the same. In fact, Paul in 2 Corinthians 11.3 warns the Corinthian church, here's what he was concerned with and here's our concern today. He says there, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ You know what our problem is? It's not, not that we don't get to spend enough time doing our hobbies. Not that we don't get enough time to really spend those things that we long for and spend our time and money doing. The problem is that in all these temptations, though not inherently sinful, become the stumbling block upon which we fall away from the living God. Our thoughts will be led astray to loving these things more than a simple and pure devotion to Christ. Do you guys see what he's saying in 2 Corinthians 11.3? Your thoughts being led astray from simplicity, it's not complicated, simple devotion to Christ, and pure, that's undefiled, that means untainted. And the way that you devote yourself to Christ in any way that any substance comes in is the purity of that Tainted? Yes. In other words, the things that we introduce into our life that we think, oh, it's not a big deal, it's my Christian liberty, I can do this or that, becomes the stain that leads you to unfaithfulness to your Savior. One commentator says this, 
Sin is an extremely dangerous power confronting the believer. It always attacks the individual, much as wolves stalk a single sheep. It's a terrible danger, lies in the deceptive ease by which it gradually hardens the heart as it lessens the will's power to resist evil. Can I read that again? Because I want you to understand this. It's terrible danger lies in the deceptive ease by which it gradually hardens the heart as it lessens the will's power to resist evil. And I would say also to obey God. There's a first warning passage in chapter 2 that warns you from just drifting away from the simple message of the gospel and how dangerous it is that you might actually miss where you should be anchored, which is the hope and fullness of Christ and all that he is. But as that danger is about drifting past the truth, this warning in chapter 3 is the warning of the danger that you might actually do a bunch of things in the name of God. You might actually have seen and participated in the events of God when all the while you are failing to obey him and you're failing to truly follow him as in line with what true belief does. Did you know this corporate emphasis, again, is the responsibility of every believer? Look to your left. Look to your right. See them? The danger is that person sitting next to you may have this evil, unbelieving heart that is going to fall away from the living God. Guys, we know more than I think we do. In the unfortunate times that I've had to be a part of some church discipline cases, people that I know and loved, the patterns in their life began small and they just became with simple comments and references to certain things. Things that I thought, man, that guy's just funny. He's a little rough around the edges. But what it actually began to manifest was the reality of their own hearts and adulterous relationships that they were involved in with their own marriages. The patterns and things and the ways that we speak expose the desires of our hearts and really what's within us, right? Didn't Jesus teach us that? Guys, we need to cultivate a greater sensitivity and love for people, knowing how deceitful sin is. Because what's at stake is falling away from God and the eternal judgment, much like the generation of Israelites that they faced. They weren't able to enter the rest of God. Maybe you and the person next to you won't either. We have a mutual responsibility that each member of the community should feel for others. So when you're coming to worship at church, it's not just that thing that you do to check off the list, but it's that thing and that stewardship that God has given to you so that you be more concerned with other people than your own ambitions and what you get out of this time. Does that make sense? This is not about you per se. Well, it is. Don't want to neglect that. But the exhortation is that as you are taking heed to your own hearts, you're helping others fight the same war that wages in your soul. I mean, how long should we do this? Is it just that season that we're at camp or is that the season that we're, you know, we, we have just gotten back from that conference and man, we're learning some things and uh, it was for that time that I went on that missions trip or how long should we do this? Well, you see verse 13, as long as it is still called today. In other words, how long should we do this? It extends from the moment where you're sitting right now from the moment that you get out of your seat to live every moment until Christ calls you home. In fact, it's that today could be any moment between now and the return of Christ when he brings to justice all things and all wickedness in this world. It starts from right now to the coming of Christ and in fact his final judgment. This is the mission so many people get focused on different types of missions and they go and they do a bunch of social good for the world, but they perhaps do it all and yet fail to truly worship Christ. I'm not saying don't go do good to your neighbor, obviously. But if you're doing it and not warning against sin, what good are you really doing? 
be warmed and filled. Believe without knowing the deception of your own sin. You might be warmed and filled in this life. But the fact is, you're under the wrath of God. And I fear the day that you stand in front of him. You need the truth of the gospel. It goes on, and this is a continuous endeavor, not just a momentary period of your life where you go from emotional highs down low. This is the quality and characteristic. As long as it's today, this is what you are to do. It doesn't get any simpler than that, right? This is your mission. This is your endeavor. Watch against sin and its deceitfulness in your own hearts. Help others fight the same warfare. In this context, again, to sum up all this, hamartia, or sin, has a specific connotation. It's the sin of refusing to obey God and act upon his promises and be faithful to what he's called you to do. So I ask you, how burdened are you, not only for your own soul, but for those surrounding you? If you're not burdened for people around you, perhaps you need to take a serious look in your heart and realize that you're maybe concerned about your own things rather than that of God. And you need to repent. How burdened are you, not only for your own soul, but for those around you? The true mark and responsibility of every believer is entrusted to see Christ and the foundation of Christ set for each person here. The final point is not only the fact that you have a personal faithfulness, it's not only the fact that you have a corporate faithfulness and the way that you're committed to Christ, but can I also add this last point? is the fact that it's an enduring faithfulness, and this is the responsibility of true belief. It's an enduring faithfulness. It's not one that appears for a little while and then just disappears. It's one that the constant quality and the habitual pattern of your life is characterized by a faithfulness to this mission. You see in verse 14, for we have become partakers, or we have become sharers of Christ. If, you've got to love the ifs of Scripture. For we have become partaker. How do you know if you become a partaker in Christ? You ready for this? If we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Genuine faith is tied to persevering faith. Ones that continually sets to renew your mind in a habitual pattern to that of God's and fighting against this evil unbelief that could stir up in your own hearts. If you've truly tasted of Christ and of his gospel, this verse clearly lays out that the true test is your faithful commitment and obedience to him through your entire life, not just that moment you threw the pine cone in the fire, the time you signed the card, the time that you raised your hand, the time that you prayed that prayer. This is a habitual pattern. Don't you guys know in 2 Corinthians 5, it says that we all, as believers, will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We're going to have to give an account for the works that we have done, is what it says there. In other words, the the tense of that verb gives us the idea that it's not about the individual failures that you're going to be judged on account of when you stand before Christ. The things that are going to be exposed is the entire pattern of your life. It's the picture of your life that's going to be standing before God as you stand before Christ and account for what you've done. We have to stand before this judgment seat of Christ and give an account for what you practiced and how you lived. So in other words, what's great about that is if you've sinned, if you've fallen into sin, if you've committed some act, there's still time for repentance. And there's a time to set a new pattern of obedience that walks in faithfulness to the Lord. To be able to stand before him and set new patterns. It's not that we expect perfection, but the idea is that, yes, you might sin. It's a matter of, if you see your brother in sin, what do you do to help him? Go and help him set new patterns, to help him learn forgiveness, to come over uh, whatever sin that he's committed, instead of judging him and just saying, wow, how bad that is that that person did this or that. Instead, you want to go and help fight at the root of what perhaps led to that sin in that person's life. And this is the characteristic of perseverance that then characterizes true believers. It's not that you're going to be perfect, but you know what? We pursue holiness because God has called us to that. 
We strive for that individually, yes, but then corporately what God's designed this church for is that we do this and exhort one another as long as it's called today. If we're being exhorted to faithfulness here, if we're exhorted to do this kind of activity, it must be in the author's mind by simple implication that the author must be aware that there must be a type of transitory or spurious faith, one that has emotions and does different things and wails and falls on the ground perhaps at times and goes to the altar, does all these things, had some emotions and raised their hands to the roof at different times and different events. The author is aware of people that do all the motions and see the things of God, but never truly taste of him and don't truly persevere to the end. Being a sharer of Christ means that you're dependent, that you abide in Christ, and that, yes, you may sin, but the quality of your life is that you cling to him and you continually pursue him even when you fail. You get back up and you continue to pursue faithfulness to what he's called you to. I love another way that scripture states this exhortation. It's just simply abide in Christ. Your life and the characteristic of what qualifies you is that your desire is him. 1 John 2, 28 to 29, we realize that we're going to stand before Christ. And as it says there, now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. And again, listen to this. If, got to love the ifs of scripture. If you know that he is righteous, which is Christ righteous, You may be sure that everyone who practices or shares in or partakes in Christ, everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. This is chief quality and responsibility of every believer. As as you have heard the truth of the gospel, you abide in him. You pursue him. You develop a pattern of practice where you kill the things of this world and delight for it. We too often live like we think regarding our earthly work. We just can't wait for the weekends and vacations, right? We like to go on the sandy shore and look out at the sunsets. But as you realize as we have to stand before Christ, I pray that none of us would have to shrink away from him in his coming. Because all these things that we had as our ambitions and pursued in place of really the stewardship that God's called us to and faithfulness to one another, 1 Corinthians 3 tells us that those worthless things, as they're called, will be burned up. What are your pursuits? What is your aim and trajectory of the things that you're trying to gain in this life? The sunsets? The feast table? Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes that it's better to be the place of death than at the feasting table because there you realize the seriousness of all of our ends. We need to get our minds out of retirement. There's never a time that you retire from this work. There's never a time that you just put your lawn chair up, kick your feet back. This is a time of work, a time of labor, to see Christ formed in people. It's your mission, yours and mine. The conclusion in Hebrews 3.15 is simply the the bookend of Psalm 95, the final warning. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Is that simple enough? The exhortation is that you may be cultivating a hardness of your heart that leads you away from faithfulness to God. This is termed in scripture as rebellion against him. It's not a small thing and it's not just simply an allurement that you may be enticed by. This is something that could lead to your own destruction and is called rebellion. Watch out that in your own hearts, and the hearts of those sitting on your right and your left. Don't fall into this. And then pick up and learn how to 
Cultivate a pattern of your life that endures until Christ calls you home. This is our mission. This is our responsibility. To do anything else is characterized and described here as having an evil, unbelieving heart that has fallen away from God. Repent now. Set your course on the renewal of your mind and offer yourself in worship to him and the stewardship that he's called us all to, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Oh, great God. How convicting it is as I think about my own life how convicting it is to think about our pursuits and our vanity that we fill so much of our time and attention with. I pray that you would give us a heart that Paul exhibits in Philippians when he says, for me to live is Christ. There's one thing that defines me, and that is the pursuit of Christ. As Philippians 3 says later on in that same letter, Father, there's one thing that I do, not many things and many hobbies on the side, Father, but one thing that we set ourselves upon, and that's to know Christ in all the dimensions of the doctrine that surround his person and work. Lord, would you cultivate in us a heart of obedience that we would not only long for this in our own hearts, but, Father, cultivate in us a desire and a longing to build up every single person in this church to not only make professions of Christ, but to persevere in faithfulness and seeking after him with all our being. I pray, Lord, that that will be the testimony of this church, Father, because who cares if we do a lot of things in your name but fail in this one task? Lord, we repent, and we desire to be aligned with your will. Help us now be set apart not only upon the vain thinking of our own things and desires. Guard us against this type of evil, unbelieving hearts, and lead us to true compassion to help each person here be found in him blameless on that day as we stand before him to give an account. Amen.